Hi everyone, it's Rain. Welcome back to uh, my podcast, Under the Lemon Tree. In this episode, I will be breaking down and giving my full review and analysis of House of the Dragon Episode 8, The Lord of the Tides. Once again, I have my notes in front of me, so uh, let's get started. I'm excited to talk about this episode. Um, Just to begin with some general thoughts, just like I I predicted, I would say, in the last episode of my podcast, every time a new episode of House of the Dragon has come out, I have said, this is my favorite episode yet, or this is the best episode yet, and that has continued with this episode. It It's crazy to think that an episode could even try to compete with or try to top episode 7, but this one was just breathtaking and incredibly, incredibly emotional. I heard... You know, people saying on Twitter and online that this was going to be one of the most emotional episodes yet. And they were they were definitely right. It was a real t- tearjerker. And I'm, I'm really excited to dig into it with you guys. A lot to discuss. So let's just start from the beginning and get started. Um, so, you know, we would begin with Rainies and Bela in Driftmark. And I thought it was interesting once again that Rhaenys wasn't involved in the battle in the Stepstones. I understand why she wouldn't be involved this time around, because she's overseeing Driftmark and seeming to run it in um, in her husband's stead. And, you know, she's also there to raise Bela. But it's interesting, as others have pointed out, that she chose to not be involved in the first battle of the Stepstones. And... I'm not exactly sure why that is. I know there was a lot of speculation and talk online about why she wouldn't be involved because she has a dragon, you know. It seems a little strange that she wasn't. Um, Perhaps, you know, maybe she thought her help wasn't necessary because they had Lainor and his dragon sea smoke. Or I I wonder if that's some kind of suggestion that Rhaenys wasn't completely supportive of Corlys fighting in the Stepstones, uh, although I'm not exactly, exactly sure why she wouldn't be, especially if it's a battle that was so um, so vital to helping Driftmark maintain its its trade routes, and, you know, trade routes that are used by, by Westeros. Um, so I'm not exactly sure why that is, and I, I don't know if anyone knows exactly why that is. I'm sure there's plenty of speculation. Um, but yeah, once again, she's not involved in the battle, She's running Driftmark, and I do think it's interesting seeing that Rhaenys is running Driftmark and not Vaymond. I do wonder if that's a sign that Corlys has a certain um, a certain trust in his wife and wants her to run Driftmark over his brother. Like, I wonder if that's designed to be kind of a slight towards Vaymond, because we know that Corlys obviously was very in support of Rhaenys becoming queen. And to this day, he is very upset that that she wasn't. Um, although Rhaenys accuses Corlys of not fully being particularly interested in Rhaenys being on the throne and it being more about Corlys's family and his bloodline being on the throne. So there could be some debate there over exactly what Corlys's intentions are, whether it truly is about he wants his wife on the throne because he believes she's a competent ruler, or if it's more so about his own personal ambitions, or it could be a combination of the two. 
but I, I did think it was interesting seeing that Rhaenys is in charge. And I do wonder if Corlys had something to do with that and if that was a deliberate decision by him to either showcase his support for Rhaenys and showing how much he wants her to be a leader and a ruler the same way he wanted her to be queen. Now he's putting her in charge of Driftmark while he's away. And, um, or I wonder if it's supposed to be a bit of a slight against Vaymond showing like, hey, I don't want to put my brother in power. I don't trust him with that power. I want my wife, Rhaenys, to have it. Um, and I do wonder if that's the reason as well that Corlys wants Lucerus to inherit Driftmark, even though he knows that Lucerus isn't actually, you know, a Valarian. Um, and he, he explained that in, in, in a previous episode, you know, that history doesn't remember blood, it remembers names. Um, perhaps he thinks that, you know, Rhaenyra and Team Black would see it as a slight if he chose Vaymond as his heir and would kind of add fuel to the fire of the idea that uh, Rhaenyra's children are bastards and maybe he just didn't want to make an enemy out of them and wanted to continue that alliance and that was another reason why he wanted Lucerus. I just just seeing this scene it made me wonder more about the the dynamic between Corlys and Vaymond and what Corlys's perceptions of his brother were. Um and whether he trusted him enough to to take the Driftmark throne or not, and if that if that at all played a part into kind of Corlys's decisions. So that's just a bit of speculation for me. I'd, I'd like to hear what you guys think. Um, I also think it's interesting how Vaiman mentions or describes what Corlys is suffering from, from the wounds that he sustained in battle. He describes it as blood fever. And I thought that was very significant because of the importance of blood and bloodlines in this series. You know, this whole series is uh, about a succession war and people in the series are, are constantly concerned about, you know, bloodlines and, and how people are related and, and the implications of that as far as succession. And they're interested in, in legacy and, you know, what names were, will the people in their bloodline create for themselves and how will they be remembered in history books so it's interesting seeing that Corlys is suffering from you know an illness a fever in his blood and I wonder if that's a, a clever piece of symbolism there that um not all is well in House Valarian perhaps because of the of Vaiman's battle to take the Driftmark throne perhaps because of the fact that the heir to Mark is a bastard. I, I'm not sure. There's a lot of different ways to interpret that, and I, I thought that was interesting. That definitely stuck out to me. Perhaps this shows that the Valarian bloodline is at risk, you know? Um, I thought it was a clever little piece of foreshadowing when Vaymond is talking about how um, Rainier's children are bastards and they shouldn't be able to inherit the Driftmark throne. And, and Rainey says, no, be careful, good brother. One could take your words for treason, which as we know later, Vaiman will say those exact words. And it, it is of course taken as treason and he's killed for it. So clever little foreshadowing there. Um, I loved the way Dragonstone looked in this episode. 
just that shot sweeping over the water and up to it it just looked so grand and so beautiful and seeing all the you know mist and fog around it it was just so striking and so beautiful um i really liked seeing jace's um how determined he is to learn high valyrian and how he wants to honor the traditions of his ancestors and how he was he was working so hard to learn this language that even uh, Rhaenyra was asking him to, you know, take a break. And um, I think even just that little scene gives us a lot of insight into Jace's character and, you know, perhaps that he is being raised or has the personality just of a person who would be competent to take the throne. And it's so interesting when we compare Jace to uh, to Aegon, you know, Allison's oldest child, who the Greens want to uphold as the heir over Rhaenyra, who, you know, as I kind of discussed in the last episode, Rhaenyra, or Aegon clearly isn't interested in taking the throne. You know, he's very selfish, and he he does not show any kind of interest, any kind of determination he doesn't really seem to to want the throne at all that was a desire that was pushed on him by um by his mother and by otto so i i just love how we have that the opportunity to contrast jason amond you know these firstborn sons of uh rainier and allicent and two potential you know people who could be forwarded as being heirs to the throne and how one you know, the one who could be considered, you know, the bastard and therefore not, you know, the rightful heir is actually much more competent for the role, perhaps, and shows an interest in it and shows the capacity to perhaps be a good ruler. Whereas the the, the trueborn son, Aegon, you know, who the Greens would argue should be the rightful heir, would be a better heir actually doesn't have the qualities of a potentially good ruler at all. Kind of like how I mentioned in the last episode, how I appreciated the way that Rhaenyra and Aegon's characters were being contrasted to reveal something about Westerosi society and how uh, misogyny was working against Rhaenyra, even though she would be or has the qualities to potentially be a better ruler and is shown to have that over Aegon. I thought it was interesting that once again we're seeing that contrast between Jace and Aegon. Because I think it similarly exposes the problem with these traditions in Westerosi culture that while Jace may, you know, allegedly not be considered the rightful heir because you know, he's allegedly a bastard. Um, while Aegon is, you know, a, a, a true-born son, and that's not anything disputed. Um, simply by that tradition in Westerosi society, Aegon would be upheld as the better ruler. Yeah, we're clearly being shown just how different their characters are and how different they are as people and how much better suited Jace potentially could be for the role as Aegon. So it reveals how how broken this succession um, tradition in Westeros is if the traditions of, you know, trueborns over bastards would potentially forward uh, an incompetent ruler like Aegon 
over a potentially competent ruler like Jace, simply based on tradition. The same way that those traditions would potentially choose Aegon over Rhaenyra, simply on the basis of gender. So I, I appreciate that a lot in that connection, just exposing the problem with our Westerosi traditions of succession and revealing in a lot of ways why I think they should be overturned or challenged at least. Um, moving on now to King's Landing. Um, I thought Alicent very much was looking like later seasons Cersei. You know, in the later seasons, we see Cersei wearing these um, dark dresses, like these dark black dresses with these strong, kind of more masculine shoulders. And, you know, she has her short hair. And I thought Alicent was looking very, very Cersei in that way. She's continuing her Cersei streak in my mind. You know, she has her pinned back hair and she has this dark green dress with these, uh, with these broad shoulders. And it seemed to me to kind of represent for Alicent, like restrain and control in the, um, inside the episode, uh, after this episode discussed how Alicent has turned to religion as a way to redeem herself after she attacked Rhaenyra in the last episode. Um, and it's interesting just seeing her, you know, her, her hair is all bound up and, and she's bound up in this, in this tight, dark dress. And she has this big, you know, Faith of the Seven, seven-pointed star around her neck. And, um, and she's replaced all of the, the dragon murals and erotica and everything in the Red Keep with, uh, seven-pointed stars and symbols of the Faith of the Seven. It's interesting seeing the kind of control Alicent is exercising in that sense, both, you know, over her own appearance and maybe therefore also in her behavior. You know, she seemed to see in her her outburst last episode as a, a loss of control. You know, in the inside the episode after the last episode I mentioned how Alicent's a person who is always kind of hidden her emotions. And that was a moment when she when she didn't and she couldn't anymore. So it seems almost this her appearance here seems to almost imply to me restraint and the idea that she's trying to conceal perhaps her emotions a bit more and exercise control over the red keep, even in its appearance, um, and in her own appearance and and demeanor. And that that definitely relates to what we see her role as being in this episode. Novaceris is very ill. Um, he's very out of it when he's um, hocked up on Milk of the Poppy. And Alicent and Otto are pretty much running the kingdoms. So it's interesting how we're seeing this Faith of the Seven imagery that presumably Alicent has put in place. And how that can kind of represent the control that she has over the monarchy um, at this point because of the way that she is essentially running the kingdoms in, in always except for by name, which again is another thing that makes her kind of like Cersei because Cersei in many ways was running the kingdoms as well in Game of Thrones um, when, when her sons were, 
were kings. She was always the one in the council meetings calling the shots. So there's another, you know, Alicent Circe kind of similarity. Alicent really showing off her inner Circe. Um, another thing that stuck out to me about this small council meeting um, was a comment that Lord Beesbury made about regarding Lucerus's uh, succession to become um, the Lord of the Tides. And he stated, ability does not alter his claim. And he was saying that as a defense to, to Luke, where people were saying, you know, he's just a child. Should he really be in charge of Westeros' biggest fleet? And then Lord Beesbury had this to say. And I thought it was interesting because that reveals, I think, even more explicitly the problem with Westerosi society's um, succession tradition in that, you know, this is a society that it's not choosing leaders based on their ability and who would actually be good for the role. It's choosing them based on this idea of bloodlines and succession. It is that very idea that would be used to support Aegon taking the throne over Rhaenyra simply because of a claim based on the succession tradition of, of men inheriting over women, despite the fact that, as I discussed in the last episode, it seems that Rhaenyra much more has the qualities to make her a good ruler over Aegon. So I, I thought it was really interesting that word Beesbury, just in this one short line, I feel like really summarized the problem that I, I see with Westerosi succession traditions. So moving on to Rhaenyra and Daemon seeing Viserys for the first time in so many years, it was so heartbreaking seeing what kind of state Viserys was in. Uh, even Rhaenyra said that he looked like a different person, and both Rhaenyra and Daemon looked really heartbroken and disturbed seeing him like this, and, and I was heartbroken seeing him like this. Um, uh, another thing I thought was interesting, too, about this scene was um, at this point in the episode, he says that he is staying out of, you know, issues of succession. And when, when Rhaenyra and Daemon are trying to talk to him about how the the successor to Driftmark is going to be chosen the next day, he says, you know, oh, Alicent and Otto... Um, decide on those things and they're trying to tell him like no listen to me like they're gonna choose Vaymond like you have to help us and um, I thought it was just interesting seeing the contrast in how Viserys is gonna end up changing his mind how he's not gonna sit back and let Alicent and Otto um, run the show at least in this decision he that he's gonna stand up for that, that fateful moment in the throne scene which we'll get to and he'll decide to advocate for Rhaenyra and her children. It made me wonder too what exactly would lead to Viserys changing his mind and deciding to to enter the throne room and, and defend Rhaenyra and her children and not let it be decided by Alicent and Otto. And I, um, I wonder if it was Rhaenyra going to him and kind of pleading with him, like, please, if you want me to... Um, carry the throne if you want me to carry on and towards this prophecy you know the song of ice and fire if you believe that I'm supposed to take this throne like and my children are you need to defend me you know and I 
I thought that was a beautiful moment. It felt like we were seeing... I felt... I saw glimpses of episode one Rhaenyra in this moment. You know, when she was first named heir at the end of the first episode, she looked terrified. You know, that final shot of her looking in the camera, it's like... It's like she doesn't know what all she's getting herself into and how this is the beginning of events that are going to lead to war. And I saw that same fear in her in that scene with Viserys. And she's saying, you know, that it's a it's a heavy burden that you've placed on me and I'm afraid. But if you if you believe that this prophecy is true, you need to defend me. And I think those words really inspired Viserys. And, you know, those those were the same words that were on his mind, even in his final moments, which we'll get to that as well. When he was trying to continue this conversation with Rhaenyra and say, you know, I do believe in this prophecy and you need to be the one to carry the torch. And um, so it was really interesting and really beautiful seeing how this interaction with his daughter inspired him really with the last of his strength to stand up and go into that throne room for one last time to defend his daughter and to do everything he can to to do things the way that he sees fit um you know he didn't want to be so so pliable and um just willing to be manipulated by Allison and Otto anymore you know he didn't want to let them call the shots anymore he didn't want to be drugged up by milk of the poppy because he he mentioned the throne room scene you know that it um, affects his mind, and he knows that, and he said, no, I want to keep my mind, and I, I thought that was really interesting, and really, really inspiring, seeing, seeing that change in him, you know, right at the end, towards the end of his, his life. So, moving on to the scene with Alicent and Diana, the thing that was really, you know, made my skin crawl about this moment is just how eerily similar it is to situations like this in the real world. You know, Alicent pays Diana to stay silent and she even, you know, threatens her essentially into staying silent by saying, hey, you know, oh, I'm your friend. I believe you that this really happened. And, you know, maybe she really does. But then she says, you know, but not everyone else might. You know, people might think you're trying to slander the prince, so you you better stay quiet, you know. So she's she's threatening her in that sense and paying her um, in order to stay silent. And that just felt very relevant to our modern world, especially in the post-Me Too world that we're living in. So I just wanted to, to talk a bit more about that. Um, so I, I found this article published by Time Magazine on November 9th, 2017. It's called, So This Is How Men Like Weinstein Get Away With It For So Long. It's by uh, Belinda Luscombe. And what's interesting is that it discusses this very idea how having wealth and power is what leads people who commit, you know, these, these heinous acts of of sexual violence against people it allows them to get away with it so the first part of this article that i wanted to discuss was when um when it states that 
Harvey Weinstein, quote, hired a firm to gather unflattering material on his accusers. Uh, he deployed friends in the tabloid media to feed him intelligence and dirt about them. And it describes how, similarly, uh, Bill O'Reilly, who is an American political commentator and journalist, who's also mentioned in this article, uh, according to his Wikipedia page, he paid out over $32 million to um, Liz Weil, I apologize if I'm pronouncing that name incorrectly, for, uh, for initiating a, quote, non-consensual sexual relationship with her. And it's just, it's very interesting seeing how in the, the cases of these real figures, because they had wealth and because they had the power and the influence to, for example, with Weinstein, as discussed in this article, hiring lawyers and people to dig up dirt on his accusers or with with Bill O'Reilly paying millions of dollars to keep his accusers silent. Um, it's interesting seeing how in House of the Dragon, which of course is a, a fantasy show taking place in a medieval world, how it's so relevant to our real modern world. Kind of expanding upon that idea, something else that this this Time Magazine article mentions is, quote, studies have consistently shown that people are much more willing to forgive if they believe their relationship with a transgressor is now or will be valuable to them. And I thought that was significant because it shows that along with the, the power and the resources to keep... Um, to help keep their behavior silent by potentially, you know, threatening uh, accusers and or and having the wealth to silence accusers by paying out huge settlements. Um, it shows that people like this can also keep accusers silent because their power may compel a victim to think, you know, oh, if I if I do stay quiet, you know, perhaps they'll be able to help me. You know, this article goes on to discuss how. Weinstein being such a huge person in the entertainment business, some of his, um, some victims, you know, who accused him perhaps saw, saw him as a resource to be able to get into the industry and perhaps they were afraid of being blacklisted if they were to, to come forward with their stories. And it's just, it's heartbreaking to see how power and wealth and the real world allows these people to to get away with these things for such a long time and i felt like we were seeing that ring so true in this scene in house of the dragon because along with being paid in a settlement you know the wealth of the crown keeping diana quiet and um it's also fair to say that fear of retribution was keeping diana quiet i mean this is the queen that she was speaking to and this was something that the the prince did to her you know and the fact that Alicent was threatening her saying you know oh if people don't believe you you know and they think you're trying to besmirch the prince you know something very bad could happen to you and how that that scared diana into staying quiet um and it's just devastating how just because aegon is a prince and therefore has the wealth and the power of the crown um, him and his family therefore have the ability to to pay off his victim and threaten her in order to keep her silent and it's fascinating how 
and devastating just how eerily similar that is to the real world, just as I discussed with these powerful and wealthy people such as Weinstein or such as O'Reilly and how they were also able to use their, their wealth and their power and the resources that they obtained from that in order to similarly keep their victims quiet. So that's something I really appreciate about this show. It speaks so much truth to our real modern world, despite the fact that it is a fictional, you know, medieval world. And it's something that I think keeps shows like this and media like this, you know, really shows its importance and its relevance for its ability to speak to our real world and the the real issues and situations we see in our world. And you know, while Alicent does seem to, to feel bad for Diana and feel some sympathy for her, you know, tearing up for her and everything, then again, she does not try to advocate for any sort of formal justice in her defense. You know, I don't know if that says more about Alicent or if that says more just about the culture of Westeros in general and its, you know, misogynistic um, traditions, or if that just says more about the institution of the crown itself and how willing it is to cover up injustices in order to save face. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what that means but it it definitely was significant to me that when Alicent does reprimand her son Aegon for what he did which yes I'm glad she got angry at him rightfully and reprimanded him at the same time she was reprimanding him for making his wife and Alicent and the crown look bad from what he did not because what he did was wrong which was very striking and very interesting, again, whether that says something about Alicent or the crown itself or Westerosi culture more broadly, I'm not sure. But it's so, you know, strange seeing how this crime against Diana is almost not seen as a crime against her. It's seen as, you know, like a bad PR move for the crown, almost. Um... So needless to say, I don't feel bad for Aegon anymore. Uh, I know in the last episode I talked a lot about feeling some sympathy for him because he was just a kid and was being, you know, neglected and ignored by his father Viserys and seemed to be being, you know, abused by his mother. And it is interesting that we see notes of that in this episode as well. You know, he does tear up and he says that nothing he ever does pleases, you know, his parents. Not, you know, nothing he ever does will be good enough. And it, it really struck me when he said, um, quote, I did not ask for this, end quote. Because it is true that Aegon never wanted the throne. It was something that was pushed on him by, you know, his his mother and his grandfather Otto. They were the people who were telling him hey, like, this is your birthright, you're, you're the one that's supposed to be on the throne, and you're the one who needs to take the throne, and I'm, I'm not trying to say this to any way, like, justify the atrocious things that Aegon has done. It just makes me wonder, 
you know, to what extent is the kind of person that he's become, you know, the the faults of his parents and the way that he was raised and, you know, and how much of it is him. You know, how much of Aegon is him being a product of the environment that he was raised in, you know, as a royal prince, as a product of the crown that can just pay off and threaten people to keep them silent. You know, as someone who was constantly being fed these ideas that he needs to take the throne and your life's in danger, even though the throne is not something he ever wanted. It is, it's something interesting to consider, you know, to what extent Aegon is a a product of his circumstances. Again, that doesn't excuse anything horrible that he's done. It's just, it's just an interesting conversation to be had, I think. Moving on to the courtyard scene, it uh, it seems that the Valarians really love their grand entrances, which I thought was pretty funny. You know, when when Vaemon just busts in, is like, open the gates, and you have all this 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 hoopla of, yeah, I'm here. Uh, you know, here's my flags and my sigils, and here I am. And um, it reminded me a lot of episode five, the the wedding scene, where similarly the Valarians kind of just busted in in the middle of everything. And they're decked out, you know, in their beautiful, expensive gold garments. And I thought it was funny because this scene definitely reminded me of that. The Valarians love their grand entrances, clearly. Moving on to Rhaenys and Rhaenyra under the Weirwood tree. It's always interesting to me seeing the dynamic between these two characters because clearly they have not been very fond of each other since the very beginning. So I'm I'm always intrigued seeing them again together because I'm never quite sure on screen exactly what they're going to say to each other or how they're going to react. So I thought it was interesting because it seems like Rhaenyra's offer to Rhaenys aligns pretty closely to what Rhaenys wanted all along. You know, she didn't want Lucerys to inherit Driftmark because she wanted... She wanted a, a, a quote-unquote, you know, true blood Valorian to take the Driftwood throne. And she wanted to honor Lena by having the throne pass to, to Bela. So I think it's interesting because it seems like Rhaenyra's offer is sort of a compromise for that. And gives Rhaenys what she she wanted, in a sense. Because by having Rhaenyra's children wed Rhaena and Bela then the successors to Driftmark and to the Iron Throne would both be descendants of Lena and be born from Lena's children. So I do wonder if this that was part of the reason why Rhaenys changed her mind because this alliance would kind of give her, in a sense, what she wanted all along. But it is kind of interesting seeing how right when I thought she was just going to sway during this scene and agree with Rhaenyra and be like okay yeah let's let's have this marriage and and I'm with you on that when when you know she says this seems like a very generous offer or a desperate one and Rhaenyra says why doesn't why does it matter and Rhaeny says well I guess you're right it doesn't really matter because it'll get the same outcome and at that point I thought she was really on Rhaenyra's side you know then she approaches her kind of menacingly and says you know that I, I must stand alone. It's like she was saying, you know, hey, 
if tomorrow when when this succession is being decided and, and you're being kicked down, I'm not going to go down with you. Um, I thought it was interesting because seeing kind of the, the, the bitterness at the end of this, it made me wonder at first, like, what made Rainey's change her mind once she was in that throne room? You know, maybe it's because she saw Rhaenyra in that moment as the winning side because now Viserys was sitting on the throne and... He wasn't interested in considering Damon's offer, and he was just like, this offer's already been society, it's going to Lyceris. Um I wonder, yeah, I, I wonder if that's what made Rhaenys change her mind, because she knew what Viserys was going to choose, and perhaps because it's in a sense what she wanted, the descendants, the successors of Driftmark being born from Lena's children. Going back to the moment when Rhaenyra is speaking to her father and, and begging him to stand up for her if he wants her to take the throne and asking if the prophecy, the Song of Ice and Fire is true. Um, it is interesting seeing how I, I saw a little bit of foreshadowing in this scene where he at first mistakes Rhaenyra for Alicent, which is interesting because in, in the last scene he, he does the opposite. He mistakes Alicent for Rhaenyra. So, and I also thought it was a bit sweet when he called Rhaenyra his only child. You know, I think it shows just how, how deep his love is for her. Um, I mean, at the same time, it also shows how his mind is going. You know, he keeps confusing Alicent for Rhaenyra and Rhaenyra for Alicent, and, and he confuses Rhaenyra for being his only child. Um, which, yes, yeah, it shows his love for Rhaenyra but it's also kind of sad because it's almost like it 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 more so shows how uninvolved he was in the lives of the children he had with Alicent you know we don't see him interact with them very much and you know even the small moments we do see them interact like uh, like in last episode where he's you know just yelling in Aegon's face and is and is Asking Aemond what the truth is, you know. Um, Rhaenyra is clearly his favorite. Um, which, it it is sad when you think about Alicent's sons, how much they, perhaps, you know, it, we, we can speculate what kind of people they would have become if Viserys had been a more involved part of their life. You know, that goes back to what I was talking to earlier, you know, how much are Aegon and perhaps... Alicent's other children, products of their environment. Uh, it, it does make you wonder. Um, but it also was a sweet moment, showing his, his deep love for Rhaenyra. And seeing Rhaenyra break down was just very, was very emotional as well. Because it made me wonder, you know, perhaps she's, she's crying out of fear She's afraid, you know, of, of taking the throne and everything that that means. Perhaps she's seeing all the tensions in the war that are brewing and how heavy of a burden this is. And I wonder if, if part of that was fear. But I also wonder if part of her breaking down was at seeing her father that way. You know, no child would want to see their parents in in this state. You know, and her and Damon both looked devastated to see Viserys like this. Um... So I, I wonder if it was a combination of those things. And, you know, this was a really, a really sweet, really tender, heartbreaking moment between 
father and daughter. So, moving on to the fateful throne room scene. Um, I love the opening shot of Otto standing menacingly in front of the throne. Very, very effective. It's strange, it looked like it had more swords than before. I don't know if it does, but the, the, the throne was looking especially menacing in this episode. And perhaps it is more and more menacing as this civil war grows ever closer and the threat of how destructive of a, a war like that could be all in pursuit of this very you know powerful very dangerous throne just like Viserys said in the first episode the iron iron throne is the most dangerous seat in the realm and just like Patty Considine said in the inside the episode, you know, seeing Viserys's, you know, physical state and, and how much he's just been broken down, you know, he said that this is what being a king does, you know, seeing the kind of physical and mental toll it has on him, you know, the throne very much is a is a dangerous thing and a powerful thing, not just for those who threaten it, but even for the people who sit on it, it seems. Now, of course, I have to talk about Viserys' entrance. It was definitely a tearjerker. Again, like I discussed earlier, it's very beautiful seeing that he wanted to use the last of his strength to defend his daughter and how he was just slowly, you know, painfully making his way across the floor with all the strength he still had and how they opened those doors and had a grand read of all of his titles and everyone's faces you know they were just stunned nobody was expecting this i wasn't expecting it either and the music in this scene was just just incredible really captured the grandness and the beauty the the subtitles described this as dark triumphant music and i thought that was really interesting it was just a very grand very beautiful um very heartfelt impactful moment. I also thought it was funny seeing Allison Otto and Veyman's faces when Viserys walked in, like their faces especially, it seemed like they were they looked worried. They were like, oh no, we thought this was gonna be like a cut and dry issue. Allison and Otto obviously were gonna choose Veyman and that would be that. But now they're like, oh no, you know, now that Viserys has walked in, like the tide had really turned and this is not going to go the way that they thought it would. <laughs> so I thought that was funny. I thought it was a really sweet moment seeing Damon pick up Viserys' crown, put it on his head, you know, help him walk up the, the steps to the throne after Viserys had told all the other king's guard and everyone else trying to help him to not, you know, he let his brother help him. And it was just a beautiful moment between these two brothers. I think it shows just how much they love each other. You know, there have been plenty of moments throughout this series where they've been at each other's throats. And it's it's beautiful how moments like this, and especially this moment, well, the last moments of the two of them together, um, seeing just how much they really do love each other and how deep down that love never never went away even with everything that happened between them. And of course, I got to talk about the moment he beheads Vaymond. Uh, I definitely was shocked and stunned by this moment. It, again, it's so fun seeing all the characters' faces. Everyone is in shock. 
and just seeing Damon being Damon, you know, challenging Damon by saying, you know, you know, say it, say what you want to say so I can kill you, you know, and then, and then he does kill him and says, you know, oh, he can, he can keep his tongue after King Viserys is like, you know, I'm going to have your tongue for that. Um, yeah, just, it was equally as shocking as it was satisfying. You know, it, it was so nice seeing, you know, this is Damon standing up for his lady. This was Viserys also standing up for his daughter. Um, even seeing the way Ra Rhaenyra's children got upset when, when Vaymond was saying these things about them and about their mother. Um, just, it, it was really sweet, you know, seeing these people come to Rhaenyra's defense. And, of course, it's very satisfying just seeing Damon being Damon. It's always a fun thing to see. I was a bit, I was a bit confused by Rainey's reaction. I guess I wasn't sure what to make of it. You know, she was watching the Silent Sisters care for Damond, and, you know, the, the maester was saying it's bad luck to look upon death, and Rainey seemed to be reflecting on the, the many deaths in her family of of both of her children, you know, presumably, and she said, you know, I don't think the stranger, you know, one of the gods, cares uh, if I look upon the face of death, you know, enough tragedy has come my way, and I, I couldn't read her uh, as far as what she might have been thinking, what she might have been feeling watching Vaymond, and I, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on that. I, I wonder if she mourns him, you know, perhaps she did consider him still, you know, a member of her family. You know, she called him good brother and all these things, despite the fact that they obviously were on opposite sides, at least by the end, as far as who they wanted to inherit the Driftwood throne. Um, so it's interesting. I, I wonder what she was feeling. I wonder, is that a hint that she perhaps feels some kind of resentment against Damon for killing Vaymond? You know, does she mourn him? I, 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 I was left wondering kind of what she was thinking in that moment. I, I'd like to hear what you guys thought about that. Now, of course, moving on to probably one of my favorite scenes in the episode, just because of how emotional and effective and beautiful it was. The dinner scene, uh, right from the get-go, just the, 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 the staging, the blocking of this, you know, seeing the physical distance of how far apart Allison and Rhaenyra were sitting, um, which, you know, seemed to be symbolic and a physical representation of the emotional distance between them. But it's interesting seeing how they still, they try to steal glances at each other. You know, I think it, it's a hint at their desire to want to close that distance, which uh, is something I see kind of later on in the episode, or later on in this scene, you know, um... So Viserys, you know, just gives this, this really beautiful, really heartfelt speech, you know, and he, he shows his true um, face to his family, and he insists that all he really wants is for his family to get along, you know. Like like Patty Considine said in the inside the episode, it's like Viserys is saying, you know, why can't, why can't they just love each other? And Viserys is talking about how all these faces are faces that he loves so dearly, and as others have said, it's so sweet, but also so heartbreaking how this, this scene and these moments of his family, you know, eating and, and getting along together um, 
are, are probably the last memories that Viserys has of his family. You know, this is the last time he sees all of them before he dies. And there's something tragic and heartbreaking and beautiful that this is this is how he believes he left his family, you know, united and at peace and happy together. And it's like for a moment they were, and for a moment it's as though nothing had nothing ill had happened between them and it was almost as if the war wasn't going to happen but of course as we know it didn't remain that way but it's 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 beautiful because this shows us almost you know what could have been and the possibility perhaps that there was there for them to be a united happy family um and what Viserys wish was was for them to be this way um it seemed like Rhaenyra was compelled by her father after he gave this kind of impassioned speech to speak. You know, she immediately stands up and explains how grateful she is to Alicent for her devotion to Viserys. And I, I thought it was sweet. And, you know, Alicent reciprocated that and stood up and said her own words about Rhaenyra. You know, when she said... Um, She'll make a good queen. I think that especially like really pulled at my heartstrings because it's just like what Allison said back in episode three when Otto was trying to convince Alicent to manipulate Viserys into declaring her son Aegon to be king. Um, and even Alicent defended Rhaenyra against her father in that moment and said, you know, Rhaenyra, she'll be a good queen. Um... So, again, this kind of felt like a, a, a hearkening back to that. And it, it was beautiful. You know, it made it feel like that spark of love and that spark of friendship between Alice and Rainier. I felt like it was still there in some sense. You know, their words to each other and the, the way that they looked at each other when they said these things, it felt very authentic. Um... And it's interesting when you contrast that with the children, you know, who very much didn't seem to mean what they said when they were giving these toasts, um, you know, when they break out into fighting and into conflict not too long after this. Um, so it feels like Alice and Jermaineira still have that love for each other, but, you know, the children don't have that same kind of affection and history that they do. But it's heartbreaking to think that all this animosity from these children kind of began because of their parents and because of how their parents were pushing them into this succession war to hold the same kind of animosities that they had. And it's almost as if the the, the adults are being nostalgic and, and heartfelt and thinking of the past and, oh, maybe we shouldn't fight, but the kids are seem all on board with the fighting, which is is sad. We got to see some more of that that spark between Rainier and Alicent and that feeling that they still have a, a friendship and a love for each other there when uh Alicent grabbed Rainier's hand you know and asked her to stay in King's Landing it just it really pulled on my heartstrings and I thought it was really sweet it made me yearn for that really sweet just wholesome beautiful friendship we saw them having at the beginning of the series and I think this shows that they still yearned for that too and it reminded me a lot of episode four when Rhaenyra and Alicent have a heart-to-heart -heart moment where, you know, um, Alicent explains how lonely she is as the queen. And Rhaenyra kind of grabs her hand and says, you know, I've missed you too. And it's sweet that they have this sort of friendship bonding moment. 
right before, you know, everything kind of goes wrong when, um, after Rhaenyra has her night out with Damon and then Allison confronts her and it, it, that bitterness between them just intensifies. Um, it's interesting how this moment to me kind of harkened back to that, you know, it's, a, it's another heartfelt heart to heart moment between them that shows the, the, the love and the yearning for friendship they still have for each other. But it seems like this, once again, is right before a major piece of conflict that may yet again drive them apart. With the, the sneak peek we saw for the next episode, where Alicent seemed to misinterpret uh, Viserys' final words. It seems like she's going to be pushing for Aegon to be the king. And now that Viserys is dead, it really seems like the succession war is going to be uh, kicked into high gear. Which is, which is sad. And it seems like... This is just going to drive Alice and Jermaine apart even more. When it seems like this was such a beautiful moment, you know, and it shows their yearning for them to, to reunite with each other. So we'll have to see what their interactions are like uh, next episode. Um, just a bit more on the, the dinner scene. I thought it was kind of hilarious when Helena just roasted Aeon and was like, you know, being married isn't so bad. He mostly just ignores you. And then we hear someone chuckle and it's like, that was for sure Damon, right? Like, I think that was definitely Damon who laughed. And um, going back to the, the contrast between Jason and Aegon's character, I, I thought it was interesting, again, to see the, the contrast between them with how Jace had the decency to, you know, stand up and raise his glass and say something kind about Aegon immediately after Aegon was just horrible to him and taunting him in front of Bela. Um, and it was nice seeing Jace getting a little bit of revenge how you know right after that he got up and started dancing with his wife helena so that was another interesting character moment there to show the the differences between jace and aegon as far as their personalities and perhaps their capacities for being king so finally moving on to viserys's death scene it is tragic to think that this misunderstanding you know alicent not understanding Viserys' words because he thought he was speaking to Rhaenyra. Again, the moment that I felt like was foreshadowed earlier in the episode when he mistaked Rhaenyra for Alicent. Um, I, I feel like, tragically, this kind of just goes to show that even one beautiful night of unity with this family, you know, them eating dinner together and dancing and laughing, it wasn't enough to erase the the years of of ill feelings and, and fighting that had been brewing between them for so long, you know, as much as Viserys perhaps wanted it to, and how he wanted to use his, his last moments to try and unite his family again. As others have, have kind of jokingly said online, um, this is why you don't name all your kids Aegon, <laughs> because it leads to this confusion. Um, but there's just kind of a sad and beautiful tragedy to that where, of course, it's not just this one misunderstanding that leads to this war that is to come. You know, it's something that's been years in the making, um, but it, it is heartbreaking seeing how, you know, Viserys in his final breath, in his final words, was defending Rhaenyra. And again, I think that shows really his deep love for her, that he, he really did defend her to his grave which is just is, is so beautiful and devastating, especially seeing how, you know, heard by the wrong ears by Alicent, it's just horribly misinterpreted and leads just to more 
more conflict and, and chaos and intensifies this war, despite Viserys' intentions. Um, I thought it was also an interesting piece of symbolism that Alicent blows out the candle right before he dies, like his fire is going out, you know, and then we see a shot of his prophetic dagger with the song of and fire on it right after he discussed the prophecy. Um, just a very symbolic, very tragic, sad, beautiful death scene. According to an article published on Vulture.com on August 11th by Roxana Hadadi, um, Viserys's last words, my love, were improvised, and he was indeed referring to his late wife, Emma, and I thought that that was just so beautiful and, and fitting last words for this character who, you know, never stopped mourning Emma and, and seemed to always carry that guilt um, for her death. Um, one last note I want to make about something mentioned in the inside the episode is I really appreciated how Ryan Condal mentioned that Allison and Rhaenyra never wanted this rivalry, but they were driven there by the patriarchy. And um, again, I think this is just another example of the, the tragedy of how Westerosi society is structured and how it was able to, you know, corrupt and ruin this, this beautiful friendship between Allison and Rhaenyra, but how they still have the, the yearning to rekindle it and how that love for each other is, is still there. So those were all of my thoughts on House of the Dragon Episode 8, Lord of the Tides. I really hope you guys appreciated it or enjoyed it. I really enjoyed this episode. Very beautiful, very emotional. Definitely made me tear up a couple times, especially on the second watch through. It, it really got me. Um, I, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on the episode. Do you agree with my interpretations? Do you have another idea? What did you think? Um, you know, please leave a like and a comment. You can follow me on YouTube, Twitter, uh, Instagram, Spotify, and TikTok, all under um, at the Spring Dream. And I hope y'all will tune in next week for my episode of House of the Dragon, Episode 9. Um, thanks again for listening, and I'll see y'all next time.